I want you to look once more in Hebrews 12, in particular, that part in verse 2, where it says, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Our title has been, Is Your Faith Dead or Alive? And a question that we were asking about whether or not your faith was dead or alive was to measure it by the circumstances and see how you were doing. Are you succeeding? Are you failing? Jesus is the one who gave you faith, and for good reason. He's already proved that it works, and he's also the one who at the end of our days, at the end of this earth, he's the one we must answer to. We have to answer to him. And he said the one thing he's looking for when he comes back is faith. And while a lot of people can pronounce the word and use the word and sing about the word, I do not believe that there is a lot of what he calls, what the Bible calls faith in the world. A lot of people who have faith refer to their definition of faith by Christian activities, busyness. I've said all of that before too, but it's not like it's something that they live by. We ended last week by talking about when faith is grounded, when you're grounded in faith, there are certain things that you do that supports it. You read and you hear and you listen and you act and you pray and you rejoice and things of that sort. This is the way we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live with the idea that we want to be found pleasing in his sight, doing his will, honoring him. And the way we do that is by believing what he said. Now, tonight there's four things about our faith. And the question is, what is it that robs Christians of their faith? In other words, what things in life, there's more than four, but I'm mentioning four tonight. What is it that robs people of their faith? What kind of circumstances or situations do people find themselves in, in which their faith is robbed? And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22 to start as a subtitle tonight. We'll just call it things that rob you of faith. They're common things. We've all faced them. We probably face most of these four things every day, at least occasionally, quite often, frequently. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus made this statement, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. Now that's not a good thing to be sifted, but it's a necessary thing. The devil hath desired you that he may sift you as wheat. Jesus said, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted and so forth. We ask ourselves the question, can faith fail? This Greek word means to utterly fail. It's almost like to be abandoned. Can that happen? Can a person who has experienced a successful trial in his life and overcome by faith, does that mean you'll overcome all your trials? Does that mean you'll be successful in everything that you do? Well, it doesn't really say that, but it should. I think the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is powerful enough, no matter what it faces, to overcome every time. Every time. So that we're without excuse. But there are four things here that he says that your faith fail you not. If we're going to live a successful Christian life, if we're going to avoid religious doldrums, that is attending church, doing religious things, and more or less life as usual with the flavor of religion in it, if we're going to be beyond that and become the kind of people that God wants us to be, then our faith is going to have to be not only alive, but strong. It can't fail. I know it does. There is a message for those who fail. Truth be known, probably most of us have had a failing venture at least once in our saved lives. But the fact that you're here is a testimony that you didn't give up and quit. If you failed, you got up. You started again. You were grieved. You were bothered by it. You got after yourself. Or as David did, you strengthened yourself. But you got to keep going. You can never quit. The devil's never going to leave you alone. And he's never discouraged. No matter how many times you overcome him or you defeat him, he never is discouraged. He never quits. He never gives up. And he stays after us. Now, God doesn't prevent the devil from coming against us, from attacking you. He simply makes sure he doesn't overdo it. And there's a great reason why he does that. 
People have asked that question, why did God allow Adam to sin, knowing that sin brings misery and defeat and all that stuff on mankind? Why did he allow that to even happen in the first place? Well, there's a good answer for that, a real good answer. And the Bible is laced with answers. Not that people see it or that people understand it, but it's all in there. The casual listener will not see it. The inattentive church member may hear it, but he didn't get anything out of it. God has things he's shown us in this hour that are designed to take root in our lives and make us strong. So that when the enemy comes in like a flood, we have something that God enables us to have the victory with and through and so forth. But if you want to have faith that's strong, it cannot fail. Now we don't please God by failing. There's no glory in us attempting to live the, the right kind of life and then giving up because of whatever halfway through it. And the things that make us give up is what I want to talk about tonight. The first one is worry, anxiety. Go to Matthew 6, of course, if you've been around here long. Of course, Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed this very subject. Beginning in verse 25, four times in Matthew 6, Jesus uses the word, take no thought. Now, the Greek word for thought here would be the English equivalent of anxiety and worry. Now, we hear a lot about this now because drug companies are making fortunes. I'm talking about money in the billions of dollars off of anxiety and worry. The people who make drugs don't want America to stop worrying. I think drug companies own the media so they can keep talking negative stuff and tell you how bad everything is so you'll get stressed out and worry and go take their drug. It would be hard to listen to a radio program or watch a TV program for two or three hours if you sit there that long and you watch it. You cannot, I guarantee you, you can't watch anything today without at least half of it being drugs. And one of the drugs that makes people a lot of money is for anxiety. The media gives you something to think about. And as a man thinketh, so is he. In fact, a lot of people can connect with those commercials because they can remember at least once in their life they felt like that. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, that's right, man, I know how that feels, oh, that's, and they begin to think like that, and they don't realize when they go to get up tomorrow to go through their daily chores, they think like that. They're starting to think that way. And pretty soon, even though you go to church and you hear about divine healing, it makes more sense to take that hard-to-pronounce drug for your anxiety than it is to trust the Lord. I mean, oh, I'd like to trust the Lord and all but, and then, well, you really don't have to take that drug. You really can trust the Lord. But that's a decision you have to make. But worry and anxiety, he said in verse 25, therefore I say unto you, take no thought. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't fret. Fret equals stress. Stress is mental anguish. The word marimna for anxiety is a mental word. It's to be divided and distracted in the mind. There's, it's not settled. You're not at peace about any solution. You're not even sure anything is going to work. That's why it's such a cousin to doubt. It's a situation in which you become anxious and uncertain. And even when the word of God is spoken, and if there's a good anointing while it's being spoken, you find yourself wrestling with questions the devil puts in your mind. Well, why hadn't it worked for you? Well, that doesn't seem to be working for everybody else. And you, you sure that's not just church talk? And you struggle with the truth. And a lot of people reject truth because they can't relate to it. But he said in verse 28, why take you thought? Why do you worry? He's talking to his disciples. Why do you worry? Verse 31, take no thought. And the last verse, verse 34, therefore take no thought. And look at the categories of things he says take no thought for. In verse 25, for your life. We got a government situation now, you know, health care. Probably the biggest issue confronting the American public now. It's all about your life. Well, God says to his own, that's us, take no thought for your life. Don't be anxious about your life. How many of you know that when you get on an airplane, 
and they shut the big door, the handle that turns on the door when you came in. How many of you know that your life is in somebody else's hands? You're not even allowed to go up front and ask the pilot if you can see and verify some way that he knows what he's doing. You paid money to sit on that plane and let somebody that you don't even know take you somewhere. You look out the window, you don't have a clue where you are. You're just flying. But the fact of it is, when you put the care of yourself into somebody else that you have confidence in, I've never met anybody sitting on an airplane worrying about getting to the next airport. Most people take a nap or they read something or they talk to each other or they listen to stuff or, or they work on a computer. I haven't seen anybody wringing their hands, oh God in the name, I never saw anybody praying. Now if you get in turbulence, that's a different story. Flying once down to Hawaii, we were heading towards the Fiji Islands and, and there's always storms down that part of the Pacific for whatever reason. And airplanes go just jumping up and down. They bounce around. The wings move, and, and uh, the engines out there on the wings seem like, and you're thinking, oh, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> but when you get on an airplane, here's the point. You commit your life into the well-being of somebody else. That's what God has asked us to do. Take your hands off of your life, and you're worrying about your life, and about your health, and about your tomorrows. God has already established the fact that he will take care of you. That he said one of his covenant names was, I'm the Lord that heals you. That your body is his concern. And that he's promised that he will send his word and heal you. His instructions in Proverbs 4, keep my word before you. Don't let it depart from your eyes. Memorize it. Learn these things. Don't let this word depart from me. He said, this word is life to those that find it. It's health to their flesh. Now, either it is or it isn't. And yet, we're so concerned about our bodies. Jesus said, don't be concerned about your body. Take care of it. It's tired. Feed it. Don't eat that thing we heard about coming down here tonight. Some new sandwich in England somewhere. Was it 13 inches around a new hamburger? It's got 2,600 calories in one hamburger. You probably don't need that. Unless you're 18 years old and you want to prove you can do it, go ahead. In verse 28, he said, why take your thought for clothing? Yes, it does matter, as I said before, and it's an ignorant thing. You wouldn't come in here in a bathing suit because you inherently know. You just consciously know that that's not the way you should approach a spiritual atmosphere. But you don't have to come in here with a ballroom gown. You don't have to wear a tuxedo. But he said, people worry about things. Always worry about this, about clothing, and about how I look. Just make sure that you're clean and take care of yourself. He said, why worry about clothing? Look at the flowers of the field. They don't worry. Verse 31, why take you thought for what you eat? Well, because the media won't leave us alone. Everything that once was good, you can't eat it anymore because it's got something in it. Or it'll attach itself to some part of your body and it'll clog you up and chances are you will die. You know, I think that's probably true. In fact, I believe that's true, if you believe that. I believe if you believe that, then you need to watch all that stuff. But I believe if you trust the Lord and they put something before you that you really like, it tastes good, I might not eat that every day, but boy, I'm so glad you stuck that in front of me because I love it. I love a sausage egg biscuit. Everyone's just really good. Have you ever eaten a big bratwurst? Don't read ingredients. Don't read what's in it. And don't squeeze it. <laughs> you won't eat it. Just get it on a hot grill, put it on a bun, and put some kind of whatever you like on it. Enjoy it. Father, in the name of Jesus, you said all foods are good. If I receive with thanksgiving, thank you, Lord, for this broth and eat it. Now, would I eat one twice a day every day? No, I probably wouldn't do that. But one thing, I probably don't need that. A couple of months, I'd look like I need to leave them alone <laughs> because of the ingredients. But I don't worry about food. You shouldn't either. There's been times in my life that the devil said, oh, don't eat that. Don't eat that. That's that. Oh, don't eat that. Well, that's when I eat it. 
I don't want to be ruled. I know you don't either. I don't want to be ruled by any fear. And I don't want to be foolish, but I don't want to be ruled by fear. Where I think I'm scared of something, that's the time to do it. I heard a saying once years ago, do the thing you fear the most and the death of fear is certain. And you figure that out. Or he said in verse 34, why do you take thought for tomorrow? Didn't know what insurance is about. The fear of what's coming, terrorism. You know, what I'm about to say is not humorous. I had a, wasn't a chilling thought, but I was thinking the other day, given enough time to think about it for a while, about the situation in the world concerning nuclear arms. And there is a country in the Middle East, Iran, which is impaired spiritually. They have no logical thinking about the value of human life and live and let live. They just want to kill Jews, eradicate Israel and you all. Why? Because you exist. You're a threat. And there's a possibility that if something isn't done or that isn't stopped in some way, these folks are going to have a capability of doing something really bad. Whether or not they will ever get to do it is another matter. They just said the other day to Israel, you've got a little while left and that's it. Which means, interpreted means, they're about ready to load up one of their rockets and introduce it to Israel. And they know what that's all about. So something is going to happen in the world, you know, and you get everybody tense in the world, somebody drops a nuclear bomb somewhere, then the gas will go back up to 15 bucks a gallon and everything will shut down and then the chaos comes, a crisis comes on this earth. Fear and intimidation is everywhere. I don't think this nation, America, I don't think we're a mentally strong country. I think we're more capable of turning our heads and acting like it didn't happen than of dealing with things. And we just like for things to go away because we just want to live our kind of lifestyle and not have to deal with anything else. But things are going to become very unsettled before long. I mean, God will bring judgments on this earth and so on and so forth. But people concerned about their life, how long they live, whether they get to live in a certain place or not. What if somebody tries to kill me? Jesus said, take no thought for your life. Didn't he say that? Take no thought for your life. It doesn't even belong to you. You were bought with a price. Weren't you bought? Well, who bought you? 1 Corinthians 6. The Lord did. You're his purchased possession. He is the one who has, because he has taken you or he has accepted you and brought you to him, he's the one who assigns himself the, the business of taking care of you. He said that no evil shall befall you, no plague come now your dwelling. He also said in the same psalm, a thousand may fall at your right hand, but it won't come near you. So don't worry about it. No, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be pretty out there, but don't worry about it. Don't worry about all of those things. Look in Matthew chapter 10 and the 19th verse in this last day. But when they deliver you up, before the councils, probably before they want to kill you, take no thought how or what you shall speak. It shall be given you in the same hour what you shall speak. Well, you've got to believe that. I'm not going to practice my speech. I'm not going to rehearse what I'm going to say to this official. I know these are the last days, and God said, just trust him. And when you get there, it will be given to you because God is able to impart to a human being, divine wisdom. He doesn't have to shout it down. You just have to have a kind of a surge of confidence in what just came to your mind to speak that. It'll be God. But he said, don't worry about it. Look in chapter 13. This tells you what anxiety does to the word, why a lot of people are not growing spiritually. Matthew 13, verse 22. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care, there's that word thought, and the care of this world, the worry that the world gives you to worry about, chokes the word along with the deceitfulness of riches and you bear no fruit. Folks, bearing no fruit's bad. You read John 15 about 
being fruitless in this life. And then in Luke chapter 10, you don't have to turn to that. Remember the story of Martha, Martha? Jesus said to Mary's sister, Martha, Martha, you're so careful. Or you could say troubled. Or you're so anxious and, and you're so stressed out about what you're doing. And really what Mary's doing is the only necessary thing in the world to do is to hear the word of God. But your anxiety is keeping you from hearing it and it's being choked. I mean, you're not benefiting from what Jesus is saying because you got other things on your mind, things that you can't get off of your mind. You couldn't even leave them in the car. If you're sitting in here tonight concerned about what you're going to do tomorrow, how you're going to handle some situation, you're not going to benefit anything tonight. He's already told you what you shouldn't do, and you're doing it anyway. And it's hard to tell people that because people wouldn't think that, well, I go to church and I listen to what the Bible says, but nothing's working for me because you're not believing all you have to do is worry about things. The devil gives you something to worry about. Next thing you know, boy, you're not getting anything out of anything. Paul said it like this in Philippians 4, 6. He says, be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God. And the peace of God. Let go of it. Let go of all your tomorrows. Tomorrow's not even here. Jesus is already in our tomorrows. What do you say in 1 Peter 5, 7? I cast all my cares upon him. Why? He doesn't worry for you. But that word careth for you means he cares about you. He doesn't want you to be stressed out. You have no testimony when you're always worrying. Listen to me. Not just because I'm older than I used to be. I've talked to a lot of people in 40 years, here, abroad, in the States, other places, heard a lot of stories. I believe that when people are stressed out, they talk. It's like, I want to get this out. I want to get this off of my chest. Well, I can see where there's a benefit to that if you do it the right way. A person who cannot but talk about their problems and their concerns. They had never, at least the time I've been around, they've never learned to cast all their anxieties and all their worries and all their concerns, as the Amplified Bible says, once and for all over on the Lord. He really cares about you. He doesn't want you to feel like that. He wants to take care of this. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, not your problem. Acknowledge his solutions, not your difficulties. How long have we been here? 27 and a half years now? People still talk about their problems. They have never learned to cast it over on the Lord. And I know that's why a lot of people, not necessarily you, but if the shoe fits, fits all of us, mine too. If we're not doing well, it's because we're not doing something right. Because everything God tells us to do has a good solution to it. And worry is just ruining us. Stress and anxiety and concern and going around with this kind of, I'll just tell you one thing. I really, don't need that. Nobody needs that. That's not the way God wants us to live. Second thing, Matthew's gospel. Chapter 8. Matthew 8, verse 23 through 27 is fear. Fear is a faith robber. It's a destroyer of faith. You talk about, is your faith dead or alive? Fear will kill it. Fear will use worry because people worry because they're afraid. But it's a killer. It's a killer and it's a destroyer. Verse 23, and when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We perish. They must have believed that. And he saith unto them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Now today, if you weren't afraid in a storm, people would think there was something tragically wrong with you. That if you're an ordinary, real person, and a situation like this arose, you should be terrified. 
Well, Jesus was in the same situation with the same people. And when they woke him up, he said, Mark's version, the last two or three verses of Mark, he said, how is it you have no faith? But here he said, oh, you have little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm, fear. Fear is why people turn around and go back. Fear is based on uncertainty in the Christian faith. A lot of people are uncertain about the promises of God. Oh, we hear them. Yeah, I've heard them. I've heard you preach about them. Yeah, I've heard them a lot, but boy, I, I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm not convinced that if I do that, this will turn out good, which means that you're about to turn back because of fear. Put your finger wherever you are and turn to Hebrews 10. The other day we looked at this verse right here in Hebrews 10, the last two verses, verse 37, 38, and he talks about your faith there. He said, the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, God says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And he said, but we're not of those that draw back into perdition or destruction. But we are those who believe to what? Now, let me ask you a question. What do we have to look forward to when we stop believing? Now, you don't have to answer that, but just look at that verse because the answer is there, one answer. We are not of those who draw back unto destruction, but we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. To draw back is not good. See, the word draw back is this Greek word hupostello, and it means to shrink or to cower. It has the idea of timidity to it. You know, like, I don't want to rock the boat here. I don't want to persecute. I don't want to fussing at me and labeling me or singling me out for adversity or persecution. You know, Nicodemus came to Jesus in broad daylight. When did Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night, why? Well, turn to John 12 and look in verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest what? Well, why didn't they live their life? Or why didn't they live their faith in Jesus Christ? Because of fear that they would lose what they had. I'm not talking about something that doesn't happen. This happens a lot. Somebody who is of renown or some accomplished man, made a lot of money, became famous in some way or looked up to in the community, would have a hard time fitting in with a church like this. Did I tell you all about the senator that joined the little street front church in Louisville? See, he would have to almost disguise himself to go to that little church where God met him because he wouldn't want any of his peers to know that he goes to that kind of a place to worship. But that's where God meets him. We won't know in this life how many people would have benefited spiritually and would have made it to heaven if they had been like that senator. But they esteem the praise of men, the acceptance of other people, their name in the community. They put more value on that than their spiritual well-being. And if somebody did see them coming to a place like this and they say, were you over there at that place? They would make excuses. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> I was trying to get home. I got lost and no. I gave up the worry and the fear about this kind of stuff a long, long time ago because by the time I got out of Charlestown, I was ruined anyway. Because my brother had a good name and he was the famous ball player. And of course, here I was speaking in tongues and casting out demons and in a Christian church, and that is absolutely unheard of. But there's such a fear of what will happen to us, a fear of what people will say, a fear that if I stand up and give a testimony, it might not be really good and might get misunderstood, and people might laugh or giggle at me, and then they would look at me and, and laugh at me. If you can conquer fear in this life, and I believe fear is the best shot the devil's got. I believe it's his best shot. If he can whack you with fear and you don't go down, I think you can overcome anything else that he has. People fear the pain or the sickness or fear of the feeling they have in their body, a fear of what will happen and a fear they're going to die, a fear of a lot of things. 
Oh, lots and lots of things. Flu, fear of sickness. And we can laugh about it when you're well, but you know, then people will start going through things and you think, Ooh. it's almost like, should we trust the Lord or should we do something else? Well, that's your call. God doesn't keep the flu from going around. He doesn't keep trouble from coming. He doesn't prevent terrorists from coming to country. And you're here, so he has a reason to do something while you're here, but he doesn't keep those things from happening. He might keep things from happening to you if you believe. But he said, we're not of those that draw back to destruction, but those who believe to the saving, the well-being of the soul. In the same Gospel of John, look at chapter 19 and verse 38. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. That was when Jesus died. He came at night to Jesus when he first came because of fear of what everybody would say to him or maybe about him if he didn't. Turn to Galatians 2. Let me show you another thing here. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12. Talking about a fear of what everybody thinks. Fear of your reputation. For before that certain came from James, and he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision, or the Jews. That is, here was Peter, along with Paul, ministering to Gentiles. Remember, Peter had the vision and all the unclean food and all that and so forth. And so there's Peter with Gentiles eating with them, probably enjoying their fellowship. Then here came James and some Jews, and Peter said, uh-oh, uh-oh. So he withdrew himself from these guys he had been fellowshipping with as though he wouldn't even associate with all these people. That's when Paul rebuked him. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, that is, you've been running around with these Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? I mean, here you are being a Jew and, and you're fellowshipping with Gentiles, but you're not preaching at them or telling them what Jews tell them. You just join this. Then here comes Jews from Jerusalem and then you withdraw from these people like, oh, I don't want anything to do with them which is hypocrisy. But see, he was afraid of what people thought. Fear makes you a hypocrite. Did here, didn't it? A fear of what somebody would think? A fear of what somebody's gonna say? Or fear of dying? It's dark out there. There are criminal agents out there. They're somewhere, they're here, they're everywhere. Fear. A fear of maybe letting your child play outside in the street. There used to be you could go in the house and let your child play all day long in the street. You can't do that now because there are bad people out there. People worry about their children, worry about them at school. Now they're washing their hands 10 times a day so they won't have germs. Sometimes I think children are germs. They're just little balls of germs. <laughs> As one medical doctor said one time, children are tougher than a brown rat because they can be bathed in feces and eat dirt all day long and live to be 100 years old. But see, everything's got a different slant today. I mean, you're being told today that, that you can't eat this, you can't go there, you can't touch that, this will kill you, that's bad for you. People are being trained to be afraid. Sometimes I think the reason it gets so quiet, not always, but sometimes I think it gets quiet in a meeting because you know what you're hearing is right, but boy, you evaluate yourself. You think, you know, I'm not, I'm not living this. You ever think like that? I'm not living this thing the way I'm supposed to all together and I need to tighten up. Well, it's good because God wants your faith to be a living faith, trusting in him with all your heart. The fourth thing, go back to Matthew now. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 31. We're all familiar with this story. It's longer than just Matthew 14, 31. It's about Peter walking on the water. You know the story. Verse 30. And when he saw the wind boisterous, you know, Jesus was walking on the water. Peter said, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. You know the story, don't you? Talking about faith now. 
when he saw the wind boisterous, because the devil would do that, he was afraid. And when he was afraid, he began to sink. And he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hands, grabbed him by the hair of his head, and drug him back to the boat. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, and immediately, and he'll do this to you too. You don't have to be on a sea of water. You can be on the sea of life. And what he did for Peter is just an indicator of what he'll do for you. You got to get out of the boat to get in this situation and experience this miraculous intervention, but it's there. And immediately the Bible said he reached out his hand and he caught him and he said to him, Boy, that was close, Peter. <laughs> what did he say to Peter? Does your Bible say oligopistis? Oligos pistos. That's O ye of little, puny, small faith. O ye of little faith. Why did you doubt? I told you a while ago that fear is what produces doubt. Now, before we get on Peter's case, like, well, what, that dog, why'd he doubt? You know, I've never been in a raging sea. I've been in a house watching a raging wind blow across the yard. I didn't see it, but I was one time out on Buzzard Roost. The wind was so bad in one part up there that it blew a barn all the way across the field and a little bit of it over the road. That's a strong wind. I mean, that must have been 70, 80 miles an hour, whatever it takes to blow a, a barn over. I mean, the kind of wind that will blow a truck over on a highway. Now, could you imagine being in an ocean, wind blowing that fast in the water, and the waves whipping up, you know, whatever a big high wave is, and your chances of surviving a little bit of this are nil. Now, I don't know how bad it was that night, but it was roaring, and it was just terrible. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. I don't know how you walk on water when it's like this. But he did. And I don't think he climbed up one and walked down another. I just think he just came walking. I think there was a level spot and he came walking on the water. And these guys in the boat, the type of the church, picture of the church, that boat. And they've been out there rowing for several hours. They hadn't gone far because they couldn't get along with each other. You know, they didn't work the same kind of oars in the same direction. They all wanted to go whatever they were out there, and they hadn't gone far. Everything was against them. And in the darkest hour of the night, here comes Jesus. It'll be like that in the end. When it's darkest, when people are most caught up in the, the worries and the discomfort of this world, a lot of people will know that he's coming. They'll get ready for it. And he came to them. And Peter saw him, and he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on this water. And he said, come. Now, he must have yelled, come, because the wind, you know, the noise would have been hard to talk through. He must not have been very far away, because he couldn't have yelled through it. Well, he could have. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and maybe walked from here halfway back the aisle there. He had his eyes on Jesus, and as long as he did, he wasn't looking at the waves. But the devil will always try to make you aware of what you're doing and that it won't work. And he began to notice the boisterous winds in a way. He got his eyes off the Lord and he began to sink. But he was close enough to Jesus that when he did, Jesus reached out and grabbed him. He didn't say he sunk. He began to sink. He grabbed him so he didn't have to reach all the way down under the water and hunt for him. He just reached out and grabbed him. I guess he stood back up on the water, didn't he? What would Jesus do him like I do one of my grandchildren? Did he pick him up and hold him like, like this in his arms and say, Peter, why'd you doubt? <laughs> I don't think he did it. I think he picked him up and he stood there. Whatever miraculous power he started with, it was the same as what Jesus had. Jesus restored him back to that, but he rebuked him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you quit believing? Doubt is a horrible thing. You talk about messing with your mind. Doubt is a mental word also. Doubt throws you in opposite directions also. Doubt renders you incapable of making the decision that you're at peace with.
because you're always thinking it was a wrong decision. I made the wrong decision. I'm not sure. And people are not in league enough with the Lord to know before they do big things to find out what God wants to first. So there's just this uncertainty and this trouble that people have. Doubt does this to you. Isn't there a verse in the Bible that says, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them? Isn't there a verse like that somewhere in Ezekiel? Where is it? Mark, that's right. Eleven twenty-four. Remember what verse 23 said? Well, let me tell you what it said. If you believe and tell a tree to go thrown into the sea and you don't doubt in your heart, but you believe the things you say will come to pass, you shall have whatsoever you say. But you got to believe it. He didn't say try it and see. He said believe it. Believe it. Do you believe your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? You can't be sure in the natural realm because you can't see the book. You got to believe it, don't you? In the course of my lifetime, I've talked to a lot of people who can't get settled right there. You talk about being in a frenzy. I know a person right now I'm thinking of. They're not here, not in this church. If you're listening to this tape, I'm for you. But they cannot settle in their life. This is a church-going person that they're really saved. They try to get baptized again or they try to go forward again or repent at the meetings every time a special meeting comes. They do whatever they can to try to get that certainty of being saved. They just can't believe Maybe they can't believe it's that easy or that simple, that they have to do a lot of things. They have to engage some work and accomplish something before they can know they're saved. This person's in turmoil. Doubt is an awful thing. In fact, it's so bad that in James chapter 1, you need to turn to this one, James chapter 1. This is what he said about doubting. Verse 5, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to Shelbyville Christian assembly, liberally. Well, it would include you, but he gives to all men liberally and he upbraids you not. He does not rebuke you for asking, but he does put this condition on there. And this will determine whether your faith is living and active, accomplishing something or whether it's dead and doing nothing. But let him ask in faith without wavering. Remember the verse about Abraham staggered not in Romans 4, staggered not at the promise of God. He did not waver at the promise of God about him being a father to a 90-year-old woman. I mean, he knew all the physical condition, but that didn't throw him off base because Jesus was big enough to make that work. So he looked at it that way. He staggered not. The word wavereth and staggereth are the same things. In the book of Jude, he said, on some have compassion. The word compassion is the same word as wavereth here. There are some who are struggling. Now listen to me, all of you. I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook. I just want you to know where you can be in your walk with the Lord and not condemn yourself unless you're just going to repent and get over something, but not just keep condemning yourself. The Bible says on some have compassion. There are some who are struggling. They maybe shouldn't be, but they are. And he said, have compassion on these people. Some say with fear, just let them have it. Turn or burn. Then some who are really trying, but boy, it's hard to get that left foot in front of that right foot and keep going. You keep encouraging them. Not here to condemn anybody here. Of any failure you're experiencing or any failure that you've had, I don't encourage you to fail. I encourage you to trust the Lord and be successful. But I know that some people are struggling. Maybe you haven't been paying attention. Maybe you're so distracted by the world. The word isn't taking root. I don't know. But this word in Matthew here about doubting. Why did you doubt? Or Mark 11, 23, if you doubt not. If you're convinced that when you pray for something that God has promised that. That's his will. And you're fully persuaded and you're convinced of it. You won't stagger either. God doesn't want you to walk around in uncertainty or unsettled about his promises and whether or not it'll ever work. But James 1, is it verse 6? It says, but let him ask in faith without wavering. For he that wavereth, that's our word doubt, 
He that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And notice the next verse, verse seven. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. Why? Come on, read the verse. Why? Because he's a double-minded man and a double-minded man is unwhat in all of his ways. He's unstable. Listen to me. You don't have to be. If you are, it's because you worked at it. But you don't have to be. None of us have to be unstable. We don't have to walk around with the fear chip on our shoulders all the time, dropping the ball and crying out at the least little grunt of the devil. We don't have to live like that. We're seated in heavenly places. The one who is under our feet is the one whom Jesus defeated and gave us the victory over. He said, in fact, the Bible says Jesus leads us daily in his triumph. That we're seated above principalities and powers and all those works of the devil. We're not looking up at them like giants. We're looking down at them like grasshoppers. But it's still real when the trial comes in your life or the pain is real or the difficulty, the circumstances are real. Whether it's mental, social, domestic, financial, it's real. But the solution is the same. The solution is the same. It's faith. What things soever you desire. When you pray, believe that you have received it. And you'll get it. But that's the condition. You've got to believe when you pray that you'll get it. Because James 1 says, if you ask God for something, but you're never really sure it's going to work, and you're still asking people, what do you think? He said, you won't get anything from the Lord. Does your Bible say that? I think that's a solemn, real solemn verse of Scripture. Let not that man think that he shall receive. Does it say anything? Well, how much fear and trembling is in that? anything. What about my salvation? What do you believe? Can you believe for your salvation? Most people think, well, I can believe it happened in the little Baptist church 20 years ago. No, do you believe right now tonight, if the Lord Jesus came tonight, you'd go to heaven? Oh yeah. Well, based on what? Jesus died for you a long time ago and you surrendered. You believe that? Yeah. Well, Jesus said to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You cannot stop believing and you can't put believing on a hook where you pick it up on Sundays and then let it off on Monday. You got to believe all the time. It's the one supreme condition that God holds all of us to and it's the one supreme answer to all of man's ills. One answer, faith. If you can believe God, he said, all things are possible. If you refuse to believe God, he said, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God because he's a double-minded man. How hard is it to believe when there's a delay? How long has it been now since you prayed about that condition? Has it been a month? How about a year? How about 40 years? And it hadn't been fixed yet. Does that mean it won't be? Might be one more day. Might be tomorrow. Hold on. Finally, if you'll turn to Matthew 16, beginning in verse 5. And you also want to find, because this is the other one in Mark's gospel, the next book over, Mark chapter 8. We're going to go from Matthew 16 over to Mark chapter 8. Matthew 16 and verse 5. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O you of little faith, there it is again, O you of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand? Have you not been paying any attention at all, all these years? Do you not understand, neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, neither the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I spoke it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Sadducees? 
Then they understood that he was talking about their doctrine or their teaching, what the Sadducees and Pharisees would teach them. He said, you better beware of what people like that tell you. Now look at Mark's account of this. Mark chapter 8 and verse 17 and 18. And when Jesus knew it, he said unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, which means, don't you get it? Don't you understand? Can't you put this together in your mind and see what I'm saying? Perceive ye not, neither understand. Have you your heart yet hardened? Did your Bible say that? Well, can you connect the two? Can you connect the two? We're talking about dead faith, living faith. Jesus being the author of faith that lives. Now here's men who follow him around. They see these things going on all the time. They're not getting the value of what they're seeing and they're not getting the meaning of it because they even had this problem with about bread. Eleven of the Pharisees must be because we didn't have any bread. You bring the bread. I don't have any bread. You get it? No, you're supposed to. I wouldn't either. You were. So Jesus said, why are you talking about bread? Why are you discussing amongst yourselves in this accusing each other tone about something to eat? Don't you remember when we fed 4,000, how many baskets? Don't you remember? I didn't tell you to throw anything away. I said, pick up all the pieces. We're going to keep that. We're not going to waddy dump this. We're going to eat this. So they picked up all the pieces. He said, remember how many barrels of leftovers we had? We started with this, what, a few fishes and loaves? And we wound up with barrels, basketfuls of leftovers. After having fed 4,000 men, maybe 10 or 11,000 counting the women and children. And remember the 5,000 that we fed? And I'm seeing them standing there thinking, yeah. Today they say, well, we know you could, we know you have, but... How do we know that we can just live like you'll do that for us? Or you'll do it again? I mean, we've never seen that happen again. Well, you've never been out in the wilderness either. I mean, people don't go far enough with the Lord to experience some of the wonderful things that some saints do experience. They're afraid to go that far. They back off and walk the broader way. He said, why are you reasoning about this? Then he said these words, is your heart hardened? See, you hide the word in your heart. Are you taking it all for granted? Are you just assuming that if you've heard it once, you've heard it all, you need to hear it? See, as a pastor, I say, well, there's some things we've taught on more than anything else. I know sometimes I think, oh, we preached on it too much, but there's far too much evidence that it's not working. Too many people on the verge falling apart. It's not working. They listen and they listen and they listen and they listen. They're here all the time and yet they fall apart. Now that ain't right. That ain't right. God isn't teaching us how to fall apart. He's teaching us how to live. The simple message of faith is having a hard time finding a lodging place in the hearts of God's people. The ones that hear it. You wonder, do you perceive, you understand what this is about? Is this finding a place in your mind where you're putting this together and getting it? Is anybody home? Are we talking to a blank? I mean, how many things did Jesus have to do for us to go, whoa, there ain't nothing he can't do. There's no problem he can't solve. He's never going to lead me anywhere. He can't keep me. He's never going to let me get so overloaded that I'm going to fall apart because he's in control of that too. Well, the best, easiest thing I can do is just trust the Lord. Just take him at his word and trust the Lord with all your heart. What do you say in Psalm 3? Because remember Mark here, Mark also said in verse 18, having eyes see ye not, having ears hear ye not, and do ye not remember? You see, this fifth point has to do with forgetfulness and a hard heart. The heart just naturally becomes resistant, hard to the Word of God. It just naturally feels like it's already got it, I don't need it, and yet your life is not evidence that it's working for you. Now maybe yours is, I'm talking to those that are watching this electronically, or listening. You see, God is for us, He's not against us. 
He wants us on his side. Remember Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What's the first two? He forgiveth all your iniquities, and he heals all your diseases. Why do you suppose he said in verse 2, forget not all his benefits? Forget not. Is it wrong to forget? Well, how can we remember? See, that's another sermon, but let me give it to you real quick. Psalm 1. This is how you remember. Blessed is the man. I want that. Blessed is the man that walketh not, standeth not, nor seats himself in the company of scoffers and sinners and so forth. I don't mean witnessing to them. I mean running with them. But his delight, verse 2, his delight, what he really likes, what he really enjoys, his delight, his valuable thing is in the word of God. And in his law, he doth meditate day and night. In other words, the word of God is on his mind all the time. It's one thing he enjoys more than anything else. Not Rush Limbaugh, it's the word of God. I know you still communicate and eat and sleep and sell your goods and do your job. But I'm talking about, in the deepest spiritual sense, the one satisfying thing, the one necessary thing Jesus said, but the one thing that satisfies a hungry spiritual soul is the word of God. It is what man lives by. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. God sent his word not only to heal them, but to feed them. He said in that psalm, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate, ponder, think deeply, quality time thinking, deciphering the word of God, talking to yourself about it. What does that mean? Meditate. In his law he doth meditate day and night. If a man does that all the time, people will probably think he's weird and they wouldn't want to hire him, they wouldn't even want him around them. But no, now what does God say what happened to him? He shall be weird. It doesn't say weird, does it? He shall be like a strange man. He shall be like a tree. This is how God described, like a tree planted by the waters. Its fruit comes out. This leaf is always green. It's never stagnant, stale. It never dies. It never just rots and falls over. It's always strong for one reason and one reason only because he meditates, ponders, thinks, memorizes the word of God. Last week it was we read the word, we hear the word, we think the word, we act the word, we rejoice over the word and the other couple things. Well, add this one to it. He memorizes the word, practices on remembering it. Just thinking. Sometimes I'm driving down the road, just coming from my house on Rock Bridge. There's not much company on Rock Bridge. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so you don't see a whole bunch of people, but every now and then I see a car coming and I notice it and then go on. I get past it, I think, now, what did you see? What color was it? What did the guy look like or the lady look like driving it? Was there any identifying mark? I'm not doing it because I'm a sleuth. I just like to use my mind and see how much I can remember about anything. I just like to see how much I can remember. Some things interest me like some things interest you. It's just good to, just to practice sometimes thinking. Just to practice thinking. And I can't think of anything better for a man to think about than the Word of God. To see if he can memorize every book of the Bible. This is tougher, but the 12 tribes of Israel... Ten Commandments, forward and backwards. It's a good thing for you to employ your mind to do because God will use your time with him. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. That's when faith is birthed in a person's heart about these little simple things. And you become where you take no thought about your tomorrows. God said he'll take care of us. You take no thought about your money. God owns money. Take no thought about whether or not your kids will be smart. Just pray they'll be smart enough to be saved. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to minister to us and guide us and make us to understand and to perceive your word. 
Lord, that's what Jesus rebuked his disciples for not doing, not having a heart that was pliable, a good place to plant good seed, but their heart became hard. They were letting it go. I pray in the name of Jesus that the work you do in this church with these people would be to make us hear your word, be glad about it, and to hold it fast to our hearts. Lord, I don't want us to have dead faith. I don't want us to talk about it but not have it. You've certainly given us many opportunities to have a lot of it, and I pray you'd continue to work with us and work on us and prepare us for the coming of Jesus. I ask you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.